0: Crypto Watch is presented by theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler, and every day my writing and podcasts put the financial world into context with a focus on the issues that matter. Join us today, it's only a dollar for the first month. And now it's time for this week's Crypto Watch. Alan Kohler here with a very special interview this week, and it's Scott Stornetta, who has just signed up as the chief scientist for First Digital Capital a new um, global cryptocurrency investor, Uh, but more importantly, he is the co-founder of Blockchain, and here he is to explain that. Uh, I'm Scott Stornetta, and um,
1: just an obscure person slaving away until by happenstance or whatever, I met a colleague, Stuart Haber, who felt the timing was right for us to work on a problem that in hindsight has proven very significant, namely, How do we create an immutable record of all the world's digital documents and make everyone a joint witness to them? And that itself has spawned uh, what most people have heard about, namely Bitcoin, and then all of the flourishing of cryptocurrencies and other applications of the so-called blockchain. So I suppose I'm willing to say that I'm at least the co-developer of the early blockchain.
0: Uh, Well, Scott, you and Stuart Haber came up with the original blockchain idea. Tell us when that was and what you were doing at the time. So I just
1: finished a PhD in physics at Stanford and was hired into my first real job, other than delivering newspapers or whatever, at part of the old Bell Labs, Bell Communications Research. Um, Stuart had been at uh, Bellcore for a couple of years prior to that, having done his doctoral work in cryptology. And I became very concerned, even before I made it into Belcor, about this whole issue of all the world's records are going to become digital. And as most people understand, there's no way to tell the difference between an old bit and a new bit. <clears throat> and so it was very troubling to me to Explain think,
0: what you mean by the
1: difference between an old bit and a new sure, bit. Sure, happy to do that. Well, suppose you're looking at a file on a computer PC. It'll say uh, you know Microsoft Word file or something, and then it'll stay the date and time that it was most recently changed. But that listing of the date and time that it was most recently changed, that's just digital data, which is just as easy to manipulate as editing the Word document. And so there's no really um, true arbiter of <clears throat> whether a document has been altered after the fact.
0: Thus, uh, fake news and
1: all that we're seeing. Or the photoshopping of images, um, the falsification of records after the fact, whether it's in a political scandal or in a corporate scandal. Um, And of course the scandals are only the ones that we discover. Um, so the ability to alter So data. So
0: when was this that you, that right. you were doing this? this? What, what sort of years are we talking
1: about? So this is uh, the very end of the 80s, very early starting part of the 90s.
0: So this is really early on right. in the internet, right? Right,
1: pre-World Wide Web. And the whole notion of everyone being connected via the internet was not yet there. Right, so what were you concerned about? We were consider, concerned about the alteration of internal records, corporate records, um, historical records,
0: uh, legal documents. And were you, were you the only ones concerned at that time? Were you, were you in touch with a network of people who were worried about the same thing or not?
1: Well, obviously there were a lot of people that had considered the issue, but I think the particular overlap between serious professional cryptographers and worrying about the data tampering item, we were really sort of leading out there. Okay, I came to Stuart, quite frankly, and I said, this is going to be a big problem soon, and if we can get ahead of it and solve it, we can have an impact. So, so how did you go about coming up with uh, the answer? Well, um, I'm glad you asked, because there's a bit of a quixotic story there, and that is that... We, we went into this problem with full vigor and came up with solutions that were very similar to ones that others before us had come up with. But they all had this one glaring weakness, namely, they required you to trust some centralized third party to be the issuer and the arbiter of what was old and what was new when something had been uh, frozen in time. And that was very unsatisfying to us, sort of intellectually or academically. We said, we've got to find a way to eliminate the need to trust someone here. We've got to have a, not a trusted third party, but a trust-free third party. And so that was our real focus after we got into the issue. And we, got a, we went several months back and forth on this until we finally got to a point where Stuart says, you know, I don't think this problem can be solved. But I'd still like to publish a paper. So what if we write a proof that the problem can't be solved? And it was only when we started thinking about the proof of how to prove that the problem couldn't be solved that the solution emerged. Which was what? Which was essentially, rather than worrying about having one internal conspirator, the idea was to make the entire world in on the conspiracy, create a a global network Of people that would have their fingerprint on the dagger, so to speak, and by making the trust so decentralized, there would be really no way. But
0: are we still still pre-World Wide Web? I mean, how did you even know you could do that at that point? Well, you raise a good point because perhaps in the public
1: consciousness, the notion of being able to connect everyone instantly and at very low cost. Uh, wasn't widely recognized, but recall that before the World Wide Web, there was a network of institutions that used the internet and its predecessor, the DARPAnet. And so in university circles and corporate research circles, we already had this notion that we'd be able to connect everyone. Through, through packet switching. That's right.
0: And so you understood that there was at least the ability to connect within certain wide area networks, if not the entire globe. Right. Right, certainly not as ubiquitous as what
1: we think of as consumer-grade or mainstream connectivity, and we certainly didn't anticipate instantaneous connectivity, no matter where you were, um, and the
0: difficulty of even escaping being always connected. So, what was your insight as to how to how to bring the whole world into the conspiracy, as you put it, to make that you know to make the whole world the trusted. The trusted uh, right. We make the whole world the trusted repository. We make the whole world witnesses to the event. Yeah, but but did you then is what you thought of then what's now called the distributed ledger? Right,
1: very much so. Although we were thinking much smaller sizes and capacities. So, for example, if you take the world's current most famous distributed ledger, um, the uh, Bitcoin distributed ledger. You have many tens of gigabytes of data, if not hundreds of gigabytes of data, at this point in the ledger. Back in those days, you know, with that very rapid march of due to Moore's law of uh, how much more data can be stored and whatnot, we were trying to find a way to do it much more economically with maybe a million, six orders of magnitude less data, and so we pared it down to the smallest amount of data that we could make very, very widely distributed. So the advance of having more data that can be shared at faster rates is in part what has led to the flourishing or proliferation of all these new imagined uses for the blockchain.
0: Uh, And explain to us the importance of the hash in this. Absolutely, that's a great point.
1: The hash is truly crucial to the success of the blockchain. The idea of a hash is a function that can function as sort of a fingerprint of a document. So I take a document and I run a hash function on it and it creates a sort of digital fingerprint that has two very unique properties. The first is that there's no way to recover any information about the original document by looking at the hash. At the same time, there's no way to alter the document without it destroying the hash. And so, in a sense, you're creating a tamper-evident or tamper-proof seal on every document. We can then use the hash for a second purpose, namely to join all the documents together in a continuous stream of documents such that any alteration to any document will immediately be evident to all the people that have the distributed ledger. Because they each has have the hash? Because they each have the string of hashes, the sequence of hashes that prove the validity of all the interactions, transactions or whatever other records are to be put on the blockchain.
0: And so did the paper that you were going to produce, which was to prove that it couldn't be done, turn into a paper to prove that it could be done? Exactly. Things got much better after that (laughs) because we had something
1: of somewhat limited interest but sort of uh, intellectually uh, kind of a curiosity into something that um, very much had widespread application. So when did you published that paper. So that first came out uh, in 1991. And then there were a succession of papers that we published and, of course, a series of patents
0: that Bellcore issued that oh, so covered a
1: whole series of revisions to
0: the system. So Bellcore uh, patented the blockchain. Absolutely. The only
1: difficulty was uh, the patent expired just about when Satoshi got uh, going.
0: So let's talk about Satoshi Nakamoto, sure. who published the Bitcoin paper in 2008. Um, which is a long time after you published your paper. What happened in those 17 years? Well, again, an important question,
1: and I think it helps people to understand that things don't always follow the movie script of immediate success following um, technological innovation. It's not that other cryptologists were unaware of the significance of what had occurred, but finding great use cases early on, particularly in a pre-internet world, were much harder. Um,
0: so what did, you th- what did you and Stuart think it could be used for?
1: Our initial focus was on issues of uh, forgery, uh, issues of cooking the books, issues of corporate government governance, issues of showing priority in patent law.
0: And did anyone pick it up for any of those uses uh, during that period. Some,
1: we did have some early users. So, um a company called Surety was among the earliest spin-outs from Bellcore to commercialize the technology and there was early use and in fact that uh that original blockchain if you will continues to be published today. That's still an ongoing concern, but it hasn't had nearly the fascination that occurred when Satoshi decided to couple the blockchain with money.
0: So do you think that Satoshi Nakamoto Nakamoto exists?
1: Well, someone wrote the code. That's clear. But, um, you know, there's a lot to be read into what we see there. And quite frankly, the code base, as my friends tell me, is sophisticated enough that it's really unlikely that it was just written by a single individual.
0: So it's probably a group. Right. Probably a
1: group operating on a, under a, a pseudonym. Now, part of what makes it comical for me is the fact that um, many of the folks in that community, the technical community, are also aware that I was a Mormon missionary in Japan for two years, and as a result, influent in Japanese. And so when I actually first heard about the Bitcoin paper, it was colleagues of mine sending me queries saying, hey, I know you worked on the original stuff. And I know that you speak Japanese, you aren't Satoshi by any chance. And uh, again, my coding skills are a little more uh, primitive than the group that wrote the Bitcoin code, so it's been easy to to prove that I am not in fact Satoshi.
0: So what do you think of that paper, the 2008
1: paper? Well, uh, in aggregate, it's brilliant. The collective set of decisions that were made were the first to if you will, get the ball over the net. Uh, This community of which I and Stuart had been a part had spent a lot of effort and time thinking about how could we create a sort of digital cash, a digital currency. And David Chom is another name that doesn't get enough credit uh, for kind of building the interest in that community. And it was simply that Satoshi came up with a good enough solution That the community embraced it and then we were off to the races. And I say that because I think it's important to recognize that the contribution of Sadoshi is a significant one, really a major breakthrough. That being said, it doesn't mean that every design decision that was made there is the right one.
0: So what did he get wrong? Uh, Well, he or they.
1: right? What did they get less right is uh, what I'd rather say, just because again, They were the ones that actually made it happen. Um, But one of the things that has been quite uh, controversial and criticized has been this notion of mining and proof of work, which uh, for those that are not aware of, it's a way of creating additional units of the currency, but at enormous cost, both in hardware and just the simple consumption of electricity. A cost that's only increasing. And so the whole notion of proof of work is quite a controversial topic. And from the perspective of Stuart and myself, something that was not, um, that was a a bit of an overkill uh, in trying to solve the
0: problem. How would you have um, solved that problem? Well,
1: uh, that's a very long discussion, but I will say that it's thrilling to see. The huge rush of talented individuals that have come into the space and that are now trying to improve on issues such as security and scalability and uh, low latency of settlement. Just a huge host of issues that are being addressed by people that I think of as peers if not superiors who are bringing to bear plenty of innovative ideas to improve on what
0: satoshi did in fact a lot of them are inventing new cryptocurrencies Absolutely. such as ethereum and uh, litecoin and so on and bitcoin cash which was the which is the result of the fork from bitcoin i mean do you think that that bitcoin becomes overrun now and and slips into into history, uh, into some sort of obscurity?
1: Well, again, um, I have to be a little bit careful there because I have just signed on as chief scientist of an international investment firm. And so we have to be a little bit uh, circumspect about what uh, where our investment strategy is and where we place things. I-, I think the way to think about that question is that Bitcoin certainly will need improvements to be competitive technologically with some of the newer things that have been put out. But with Bitcoin as incumbent and having such a large market capitalization, that induces many, many people to try to build something that improves upon Bitcoin, something like lightning that uh, seeks to improve on Bitcoin's weaknesses. And so the real question is, will the incumbent and the ecosystem surrounding that incumbent be able to improve? Uh, rapidly enough to continue taking advantage of its strong market position? Or will something come in that is so technologically superior and well marketed that it starts to overtake Bitcoin? That's the way I would phrase the the question without actually offering my own thoughts on the answer. Well,
0: of course, the answer is uh, for some time in the future, who knows, I guess, what the answer is.
1: Yeah. Um, long run, clearly, one thing I think we can say with very high confidence, is that there will be other emerging cryptocurrencies and more broadly than just cryptocurrencies, very widespread and successful applications of the basic blockchain notions beyond Bitcoin and beyond even Ethereum, which we all tend to think of as
0: a kind of second generation Bitcoin. In fact, there's obviously a lot of application of blockchain in various industries. Do you see it in, in as two sort of groups of application? There's there's the currency groups, and then there's the industrial groups of applications. Uh, is, that a, is that a good way to think of it or, or not?
1: Certainly that distinction has been made, and I think it's as good a starting point as any. But what particularly intrigues me is that you get to situations where the... You're no longer talking about a, a, a blockchain application that's a true currency, and yet there is a signal of value information that is passed, and there is a need for creating incentives within these applications that you're calling more industrial ones to make sure that the integrity of the system is preserved. And So we're getting something that's not quite money, but not quite non-money either. Something sort of hybrid between the two. And I think that itself is very exciting.
0: And what about the, I mean, a lot of people talk about, in fact, there was a presentation after you today about talking about what Bitcoin is going to end up being worth. Is that interesting to you?
1: Um, Well, there, I guess what I'm really interested in is the creation of value. Again, you know, when I did the 1991 paper, my strong suit was technology. But I have spent an entire career learning to evaluate technologies for their commercial potential and helping turn them into product. And so what I've learned is that just because something creates some, someone creates something that's technologically clever or even brilliant doesn't mean that people will rush to buy it. And so what I'm very much interested in is how we convert technology into product and create compelling value propositions for people that how the problem is solved doesn't matter to them, they just have an urgent problem that needs solving. And I think there's a multitude of solutions that we're going to see emerging that way. This really is what we've seen so far, just the opening
0: act. Do you think in the end, blockchain infiltrates the entire internet?
1: Yes, That's an easy one to answer. You're going to see the point where essentially all of the world's records are interlinked by the blockchain. I think that is almost unavoidable at this stage. Um, But beyond that, you're going to see a whole new set of social interaction mechanisms
0: emerge. Does that interlinking of all the world's documents result in the creation of value through, through principally the reduction of cost? Uh, Well, it certainly is going to
1: guarantee the integrity of documents in a way that I think in the future we'll simply take as, uh, as a given. In other words, if someone were to present a document to us in the future and it did not have some chain of providence tied back to blockchains, we would be very suspicious about that document. Whereas it's just an outlier today, I think it will be the expectation very quickly and people will really look with extreme skepticism at any sort of document that's presented to them that does not have a a kind of chain of providence back
0: to the blockchain. So what I mean is that at the moment, um, providence or verification is the the province of a third party, of intermediation. And it sounds like what you're describing is a future that doesn't have that intermediation. and The intermediaries get paid.
1: Right. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, obviously there are some functions that can be disintermediated. Now that doesn't mean that immediately banks become worthless or fiat currency goes out the door uh, because there are many different functions that intermediaries play. Uh, The simple notion of market makers, uh, the strong issue of network effects that the larger the network one builds, but we are going to see the ability of peer-to-peer networks exist and in some ways, in some application, prove superior uh, performance and lower cost than the current centralized trust models. And what that means is that the revenues that would have gone to that large entity are going to be spread out amongst the users of the system, which I think is a wonderful
0: thing. Similar to what happened with the internet, I guess, in the way that it, it broke down a lot of, of those collections of revenues and, and wealth and, and dis- dissipated them.
1: It certainly did. Although at the same time, what's interesting about the internet is in those early days, we thought, ah, you know, we've reached utopia. And yet now there are concerns about companies such as Facebook, which have, in a, in a sense, leveraged the internet to reconcentrate power. And again, I don't mean that as a specific... Uh, slight on Facebook. The whole F-A-A-N-G companies are certainly large concentrations of power at this point. Not that they're not providing good value, but there are probably a lot of discussions going on in all of those major concentrations of uh, corporate uh, power. A lot of some nervous discussions going on about what the
0: blockchain could do. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much, Scott.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure.